this topic tonight, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of sin. Since I know none of us have any problem with this, this should be really short, uh, and you can get out early tonight. <laughs> no, this is actually a really big topic, and to be quite honest, I will not be able to do quite the justice it deserves in one little session, but um, because we're somewhat on a timeline, I, I, I can't hang out here for several weeks, so... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to tackle this tonight, and uh, just be just know we'll we'll leave some things un, unsaid. Oh, thank you. But before we start, let me pray and uh, go to the Lord and ask His blessings. Lord, we come before you tonight, and uh, we just thank you that you have provided the means for us to overcome sin and death. That you have sent your Son Jesus Christ to to die in our place, to live the life that we were called to live, but have not done so for one minute of one day. But in Christ, we have victory. In Christ, we have a life. And in Christ, we have the power through the Holy Spirit to fight sin and have victory over it. Lord, I pray that you'd give uh, me wisdom and give all of us ears to hear your truth tonight and that we might apply these truths to our life and uh, worship you more fully in, in knowledge of it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week, uh, it's a little backwards, I had I'd already arranged for uh, George to teach on, on the doctrine of death, and typically you teach sin before death. I, I figured you guys were smart enough to figure that out, but um, ideally, the doctrine of humanity and sin are, are really, they go together, and a lot of books present it that way, and there's good reason for it, and then death comes after that, but with the weather and the snow and having to cancel, it just got mixed up out of order. But death is a visible reminder and universal reminder, really, of the ongoing effects of sin. I think we, we know that. Um, death is not natural, as George did such a good job of explaining to us. It's not the way things were meant to be. Uh, every time we are faced with death, we, we are brought that, that's brought to the forefront of our, of our knowledge. Uh, whenever we see it, we, we know that something is not right in the world. Uh, as, as you know, uh, I spent many years in law enforcement uh, prior to this job. The last uh, four and a half to five years, I was working in the forensic evidence division, which involved going to autopsies for every suspicious death or homicide. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the morgue. I've seen a lot of dead bodies, and I can tell you, death humbles everybody. Believers and unbelievers alike, it forces us to deal with questions that we don't want to deal with, but we have to. Uh, and so in that sense, death is a tool that's good because it can cause us to look toward God to, to answer the, the deep questions. And I think the reason we want to avoid death is because at its very core, death is a result of what? Sin. Sin is a cause of death, ultimately. And sin is a word that nobody likes to talk about, but it's always the elephant in the room. And we would do well to, to use the language that the Bible uses and to define it the way the Bible defines it. So that's kind of the goal tonight is to do just that. So I don't, need to, I don't feel like I need to convince you that sin is real. The universal sinfulness of man is, is obvious and it's verifiable. Uh, you, can, you can measure it. You can see it. Uh, all is not right in our world. It's not right in our families, in our relationships, in our 
communities, in our politics, in all, all areas of life, things are not functioning as they should. Uh, the fact that we need militaries and law enforcement is a testament that something isn't right in humanities. Even unbelievers can see this and acknowledge this and oftentimes do. Uh, it impacts us individually and societally and is deeply rooted within us and manifested continually. Uh, most people say they don't know the ultimate cause of this. They acknowledge the, the chaos and the disorder, um, but they try to deny it somehow. Um, I would argue, according to Romans 1, that they, they actually do know, but they suppress what they know to be true. They actively suppress, kind of like a beach ball wanting to come up out of the water. They have to hold it back and hold it down. But the Bible does tell us the, the cause of all of our trouble, and it says that the cause of our trouble is sin. So the question is, this evening, what is sin? How, how would you define sin as you understand it? If your neighbor came up to you and said, hey, tell me what sin is, what would you say? Boom. Straight out of the Westminster and Second London Baptist Shorter Catechism. I love it. Good. Yeah, that was one of the definitions I was going to offer. So A plus for you for nailing that. Yeah, how, how do a lot of how do a lot of uh, unbelievers answer this question? Doing bad things, okay. Do they use the word sin typically? Mistakes. Love to use the word mistakes, right? Why do you think they want to use the word? You know, we made a mistake as opposed to the word sin. What, what does sin bring with it in its definition that a mistake doesn't necessarily bring to it? An act of the will, that is true. Consequence, that is true. True. Who's the act of the will against, though? I think that's the issue, ultimately, is it, it implies a knowledge of a moral lawgiver. And that moral lawgiver is God, and to sin is to act against him in some way, shape, or form, right? So um, Grudem defined it in his book, and also similar to the book that uh, we've been assigned to read during these sessions, uh, is any, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. The Westminster, Second London Baptists say sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Or if you prefer the old Awana saying, sin is anything we think, say, or do against God's will. Uh, those are all uh, adequate definitions, but sin is against God, ultimately. I think that's, that's the way the Bible presents it. And these, these are objective definitions, aren't they? They're, they're objective. And I think this is exactly why our culture hates to use the word sin, because they want to do away with objective categories. And I would argue largely that's due because of the postmodern movement. What is postmodernism? How would you define it as you understand? I've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think this is important because this is the, this is the waters we're swimming in. Yeah? Yep. Truth is subjective. Good. 
yeah, right and wrong, good and evil, they're not defined in absolute terms, but they're viewed subjectively, okay? Uh, th this is important to understand about our culture because they want to repulse at anything that is objective, inclu including gender or anything like that. I mean, they're, they're against any objective categories. And so they would say individuals or societies and not God are, are the ones who actually have authority to determine what right is and what wrong is. And so this is where you get sayings like, well, what's right for you isn't right for me. Or if it works for you, it doesn't necessarily work for me. And so both of us are right. Both of us are, are pursuing our truth. So this idea of our truth, and even you see this work its way into Bible studies when we say things like, for example, what does this text mean to you? Now, if you're talking about application, okay, I can grant that, that application can come at us at a lot of different ways. But when you're saying, what is the meaning of this text? It's completely inappropriate to say, what does it mean to you, right? Because now you're making a, a truth claim that's based completely on your subjective knowledge or experience. This is postmodernism, and this has a way of minimizing or softening what the Bible calls sin, which is exactly what I think society wants to do. So postmodernism is, is in the air we breathe. It's, it's the water we drink. It is everywhere in the West. It has infiltrated Disney, Hollywood, almost every college campus, our institutions, our colleges, our schools. They're all basking in this. They're marinating in it, and it's something to be aware of. Um, they would call this beautiful art, but what is this? Does anyone know? They would say, what do you want it to be? I'm serious. This is what they would say. What do you want it to be? This is oftentimes what, it, what they say, and I, I hate that. I want to know what did the artist intend for that to be. Uh, that I think that's reflecting of true art, is to reflect the creation that God made. Uh, Christians used to make beautiful art. They used to be involved in all the, the plays. They used to be uh, the predominant writers of, of poetry and art. And uh, I, I don't think it's good that we've handed these things over to pagans because this is what you get when you do that. I think we need to reclaim these things and use it for the glory of God again. The world would be better for it. And when we do, we can bring objectivity back into our world, which we need desperately. So this is a slide I've shown before. This is all kind of relating to sin, but there's a drifting that has happened uh, in, in, in our culture. And uh, biblical Christianity, historically, um, pre-modern time, held to a, a worldview that was consistent or exclusively Christian. Uh, and they had looked at categories such as truth and the supernatural or, or spiritual realm and authority and spiritual compatibility through the lens of scripture. Uh, so truth or the, the knowledge of truth was viewed as objective, universally binding, and knowable. We could learn it. They acknowledged that, that we're dualistic, that we have a physical material world, but there's also a spiritual world as well. So we believe, like Colossians 1.16, all things visible and invisible. Uh, they, they would say the ultimate authority is Jesus Christ through the authoritative word, which is found in the scriptures. And they had strict biblical monotheism. This was the biblical worldview that influenced society for many years. But then there was a drifting into what's called like a pre-modern era. 
And this is where they're starting to make advances into science. And it's not quite into modernism or the Enlightenment era, but there's a, a slight drifting away where they, they, the limits of reality are not limited to the visible only, but now they're focusing more on the physical realm and less on, this, on the supernatural realities uh, of life, uh, of the spiritual side of things. Um, and then what the real error is when you start getting rid of the ultimate authorities, no longer the word of God or of Christ who rules and reigns, but it's whoever's in charge of things, uh, particularly in the spiritual. And so this gives, opens the door now to, th to polytheism and superstition and other types of religions that would not have a place at the table in the previous worldview. This leads into the modern area, which is where a lot of, a lot of things got out of control, I think, because they denied altogether the, the spiritual realm. And they looked at everything through the lens of science and human reason. But what I want you to see about these first three views is all of them held to objective, universally binding, and knowable standards. That truth, truth could be found, truth could be known. And so they would debate these things uh, through the means of logic and other, other, other realms. But it opened the door, without them realizing it, to postmodernism. Because when you unseat Christ as the authority, who do you see in its place? Humanity. And so humanism begins, begins to rise, which gives way to postmodernism, who says, if I'm in charge, I, I'll determine whatever I want to be true to be true. And that's exactly what has, what has happened. And so postmodernism would, would reject all forms of truth. Objective truth is not knowable. There are a plurality of truths, and they would say you have no right to say anything is right or wrong. They would reject the notion of sin. They would not use sin. They would say that's offensive. And in fact, to, to even suggest that there is such a thing as sin would be sinful almost. They, they wouldn't probably use those words, but that's essentially what they're, what they're arguing. And so no absolute truth. Uh, identities are found in groups that they belong to. And this leads to pantheism and all other sorts of religions. So... Uh, Postmodernism, no doubt, rules our institutions. And so many people are confused today because they, they grow up thinking that people are basically good. People are born good. They're, they're, they're born with nothing wrong because that's what the world is telling them. Follow your dreams because there's nothing wrong with your dreams. Your dreams are good. What you want is good. God made you good, and you should just pursue whatever felt emotion that you have. Right, and so uh, this is this, this is why we now give degrees and opinions instead of rooted in truth, grounded in knowledge, and we we, we now seem to, at least at the college level, uh, neglect or reject the classical pursuit of wisdom and beauty and truth, because it's not rooted or grounded in anything tangible. You can now go to a four-year public university and spend eighty to a hundred grand in in college degrees to get a degree in humanistic peace studies. And, and what should you do with that degree? Well, you can serve coffee for, four, for the next 10 years because you can't actually get a degree. It's not rooted in anything that, that matters in life. And so I'm not saying I'm against college education per se, but you need to be aware of the, of the waters you're swimming in right now. And, and a lot of people come out of college, I'm finding not smarter, but dumber 
because they've been taught all of this garbage for, for four years and, and they're not taught the truth at all. And we need to be cautious of that. And as, as parents who have kids, keep this in mind as you're, as you're leading and instructing your, your children. So all of this to say, for the most part, sin is improperly defined. We need to go back to the way the Bible has defined sin for us and grab hold of that and hold our ground and don't move. So sin defined, many words are used throughout the scripture. Uh, it's, it's sometimes called to rebel or to trespass or to betray. It's sometimes uh, referred to as transgressions or to pass over, which is just a term that describes violating a covenant agreement between God and man. Sometimes it's described as wandering or straying. Sometimes it's described as lawlessness or rejecting God's law. And sometimes it's described as ungodliness or wickedness or impiety. Jude loves that word ungodly. It's used, I think, five times in a very short letter. And so these representative biblical terms are, show the multi-dimensional or multi-layers of sin. Sinful acts include, of course, like breaking, for example, the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. But it extends a lot farther than that, too, which you see Jesus uh, display on the Sermon on the Mount. That, in other words, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, as Paul would say in Romans 14, 23. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which sin is not just what we do, but it's what we think, what we desire, even. It gets to the very heart of the issue. It affects every part of our being, and the penalty for sin, according to Scripture, is death. And so God desires, God wants, God demands conformity of our whole being, of our hearts, as well as our actions. And so sin is not just what we do, but sin is also what we think and what we desire as well, which is what makes it so hard to overcome. God created his laws in agreement with his own character, and this means that right and wrong are not and ever are, they're never defined by our culture. God's laws are unchanging in, in all cultures for all times, and we should rejoice in this unchanging standard. And we should also seek to promote his moral law within our families, within our churches, within our homes, and within our culture, something many seem to be afraid to do anymore. But that is exactly what God's called us to do. At the heart of the problem is we want to dethrone God from his rightful seat. And whenever we do this, we find ourselves swimming in sin and all sorts of problems. We put self on the seat that Christ belongs to. When self is on the throne, our interests are directed by what we want. Our direction of our life is determined by what we want. And when we do that, Christ then gets moved out of the circle and he's now outside of our life altogether. And these things can happen by degrees. They don't just always happen instant, you know, one. But you begin to harden your heart to being sensitive to what God calls sin. You begin to create a habit of not repenting and not uh, submitting your life to, to the Lord. And pretty soon what you find is you're the one sitting on the throne and you've pushed God out. Now, of course, no one dethrones Christ. He's really there. But from our perspective, we can functionally live this way as if he doesn't have a place when he in fact does. And this always leads to, to discipline or judgment. 
And so the self-directed life is, is easy to spot. You can tell if you're, if you're doing this or not because your life is conformed to the flesh. If you look at Galatians 5, you have the fruit of the flesh in comparison to the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the flesh produces all sorts of debauchery. You have a self-directed life is one that is ruled by impure thoughts, guilt and worry, discouragement, depression, a critical spirit, legalistic actions, frustrations, aimlessness, fear, unbelief, disobedience, a loss of love for God and for other people. And so sin must be understood from a God-centered standpoint, which is exactly what the Western culture and the world wants to push against in every single way. Sin is a violation of the creator-creation relationship. A man exists, we exist, as I talked about two lessons ago, because God made us, and that's the only reason we exist. And so in every sense, we are obligated to serve obediently to our creator. And when we rebel against that, we are, we are actively rebelling and sinning. And sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy over himself apart from the creator. And this is, this is a great error. And this is how we need to view sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just, you know, a, for, a moment of forgetfulness. It is a rebellion against God. And I think that's the proper perspective. That's how it's presented in scripture. What we should pursue is not this, but a God-centered life. A God-centered life is just the opposite. It's where God is on the throne. Functionally, we're living, acknowledging this, that self is outside of that throne, and therefore we are yielding everything we do to Christ's authority, that he's, he's in the circle. Our interests, our interests, our desires, our pursuits, our goals are directed by the Lord, not by our own heart's desire, not by Disney theology, not by sociology or humanistic teachings, not by any of those things. All of those we bring in submission to the word of God. This is where I think uh, philosophy and sociology and humanistic anthropology, they all get this wrong. They, they can make certain observations about the world that can be helpful to a degree, but because they don't acknowledge God's rightful place of authority, their conclusions are almost always wrong. Almost always. They, they, they can tell you you're sick, but they can't heal you. They can tell you the, they can identify different issues and patterns in your life, but they can't fix those patterns because they, they don't acknowledge the Lord who has the power to do so. They can't change the heart. Only God can. And Galatians 5 says that when we yield to God, we are empowered by the Spirit which then produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, how much better would all life be if those dominated every part of our life all the time? But when we remove Christ, the other sins of the flesh creep up. And until we're in our resurrected bodies, this battle is a real battle that we have to actively fight against. We have to, to mortify the sin in our life. And so the Christ-centered life is, a, is a, a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God. It introduces others to Jesus. It has effectiveness in its prayers 
because you're linking yourself to God who is the one who is all powerful and all sovereign and desires to give his children good things. It is, it is a life that understands God's word and because the mind is sanctified, rightly applies that word to different situations in life. It is a life that trusts God and obeys God in every way. This is the life we're called to live, a, a God-centered life. And this is the way to overcome sin too. Now, where did sin come from? How did it find its way into our world? What's the origin? Now, you guys know. Who's responsible? Is it God's fault? Yes, no? No. Thank you. The Bible lays the blame for sin and death in the world on the first Adam. That's what Romans 5 is all about. We're going to read it here in a minute. Great passage. I love Romans 5. One of my favorite. Uh, I go to it a lot. I don't want to proof text everything through it, but it is a really helpful passage that helps you understand the whole scope of Scripture. It's a great, a great section of Romans. And the sin of the first couple was promoted uh, by, through the temptation of Satan uh, the serpent, which we know is Satan from Revelation 12, actually, uh, and we see again in 20. But they tempted, he tempted Eve, Eve sinned, Adam's held responsible for this act, which is its own interesting thing we'll discuss here. But scripture places the responsibility for this act on Adam, and since Adam, not Eve, was a representative head of humanity, he is held responsible for this. Isn't it interesting that it was Eve who took the fruit, it was Eve who ate, but who did God condemn? He named Adam. Who did God tell not to eat of the fruit of the tree? Do you remember? Who did he tell? Adam. Eve is what? Repeating what she heard from Adam, presumably, right? So sin occurred because Satan, Adam, and Eve all chose to act autonomously and to disobey God rather than to love God. God is righteous and he cannot sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin, the scripture says. And so the emergence of sin in the world did not surprise God. He's omniscient, right? But he did allow sin to enter. And he, I would say he even ordained sin to come into our world. Does that make you uncomfortable it's for me to say that? Westminster Confession puts it this way. I, I think it's actually really helpful. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creature nor is the liberty or contingency of the second causes taken away but rather established very well said and there is in fact a mystery to this to some degree I, I can't answer all of these questions but what I can say and what scripture is very clear about is God cannot be blamed for sin and yet he created us with the capacity and the ability to sin this is a whole nother topic you could we could talk about it in an apologetics course which I would like to do but if God is good why is there evil right that's kind of the classic question do you struggle with this is this an issue for you? 
If God is all-powerful and benevolent, why is there sin in this world? How would you answer that to a well-meaning friend or family member who were to ask you that? Have you thought through that in your own life? Can't answer all those things, but I, I can say this. It's probably a bad analogy, but I'm going to go with it. All analogies have limitations, so be gracious. If, if I give you a computer, okay, and I give you instructions to the computer, and I say it's important that you follow the instructions to this computer, and you say thank you for this gift, you take it, you throw out the instructions, you break the computer, is it appropriate for you to then rebel with a closed fist in anger and blame me for giving you that? Who, who would the blame land on? The potential for the sin was given when the gift was given, right? But the act itself was committed by the user. And I think similarly, that's sort of what we see in, in the Genesis account. There was a gift given, a great gift given to man, and it was abused. They, they rebelled, they acted autonomously, and there's a great consequence for that. And in God's sovereignty, he uses sin for a great good, actually, because in it and through it, we see the full attributes of God on display, Without sin, what do we really know of God's mercy and his grace? Without sin, what do we really know of his relentless love? Without sin, what, what do we know of, of his true benevolence toward us? I think this is why the angels watch and they marvel because they don't know of this. They have to learn and see it through the way God interacts with us because God did not save the angels. God did not redeem them when they fell. Now, the potential of the sin was given when the gift was given, but we are the ones who are responsible for committing the act. Or I should say, Adam was, and then we inherit that nature, that fallen nature. If you go to Genesis 3, well, I have it up here so you can follow along. You can look in your Bible too if you'd like, but I want to read this section to you because it's important. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God's, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What's happening here? Do you see how temptation works in our life here? how sin is leveraged in our life to entice and deceive us. 
If you watch the first Top Gun, there's a quote on there I like. It's sin right, it says, you're writing checks you can't cash, right? That's what sin does. It writes checks that it can't cash. It makes promises that it can never deliver on. It promises life, but it gives you death. Promises knowledge, but it makes you stupid. It promises satisfaction, but it brings you emptiness. It promises joy, but it brings you pain. It promises freedom, but it just brings slavery and bondage. Now, with this act in Genesis 3, would you call this first sin a sin of commission or a sin of omission? You know the difference. What's a sin of commission? It's when we actively take an action towards something. We, we take action to commit the, the sin knowing full well that it is a sin, what we're doing. Omission would be things that we should have done, but for whatever reason, passively, we did not do them or we didn't know we were supposed to do them. Now, are sins of omission acceptable to God? In other words, yeah, correct. No, it's not. If, if, you, if you're supposed to do something, but you did not know you were supposed to do it, does that mean you're off the hook if you commit the sin? No. No, if you visit another country and you're unaware of the laws there and you break the laws, are you liable to be held accountable to that? Is it, a, is it acceptable to, to break the law and say and claim ignorance, say, I didn't know that was a rule. Sorry, you can't hold me accountable. No, but is there something more gross about sins of commission? I think so. Yeah, sin, sins of commission say, I know what the standard is, and I'm actively working against that. And I would say the first act of sin, yes, there was deceit involved. Yes, there was nefarious motives by, by Satan, the serpent. But also there was an act of commission. They knew, and they committed the act nonetheless. Now, sins of omission, you see in the Old Testament, laws were prescribed. There were special sacrifices for sins that were unintentional. But nevertheless, the sin still needed to be atoned for. Did Jesus atone for sins of commission or omission? Both. Yes, both, which is a good thing. Because whatever sins you think you are aware of, I guarantee you there's far more that you're not. And that's one of the ways I can measure my maturity as well as a Christian is I can look back and I can, things that I didn't know were sins in the early times of my Christian life, I now see so clearly that they are. And I think that's how God works in our lives. And that's why in some ways, man, the Christian life actually gets harder as you mature because you become more sensitive and more aware of God's standards. You become more aware of what pleases him. You become more aware of your own sinfulness. And I, I, feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm way more sinful now than I was when I first got saved. But the reality is, I'm just more aware of it and I'm fighting it more because because that's how the Lord matures us and works in us. And the Bible is peppered with examples uh, of sin, particularly of commission. You have lead great leaders actually, such as Abraham. He commits some sins or David. How about him? 
or Solomon or Peter or Paul, right? All of these men, these great men, these giants of the Bible, all committed these great acts of sin. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus pardons those sins because of his atoning work, which we'll talk about next week, what that means. So what are the consequences of of sin in the fall? Well, there are three. One is a personal consequence. Sin promises enlightenment and peace, but instead it offers shame and fear and blame. We have gross insecurities about life. We we hesitate to do what we know we ought to do. Oftentimes we're, we're battling our own shortcomings and shame and fear. All these things, I mean, Pastor Ryan talked a lot about this this morning, just how fear can dominate us. That's all because of sin. If sin were not present, we wouldn't, we wouldn't live in this, this oppressive fear and, and shame that, that can just drown us sometimes. This is, this is what sin does. It hurts us personally, but also it hurts us deeply and relationally. Sin has severed man's relationship with God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sin affects our relationship with other people. Genesis 4.8, what happens shortly after the fall? Relationally. It says, Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and it happened that they, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Okay? Sin affects us vertically with God. It affects us horizontally with other people. But it also affects us in creation. The fall affected not just us, but also creation, which we talked about in a previous lesson. lesson. But it's good to be reminded of that. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat it from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Genesis 3.17. Anyone who works can say amen to that. You know it's true. Work isn't easy. Work is hard. The, the, the creation works against us. And that's why God is redeeming all things. Yes, us personally, spiritually, physically, but also in creation too. The new heavens and the new earth will all be restored unto God. That's a great hope that we have. When we can work and we can labor, not in opposition to it, not against resistance, but working and yielding fruit uh, because it's working for us. How great that work will be. Oh, death. Forget that. What ways did we die? Now, George kind of covered this already. But there are three types of death that we have. He talked about spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. So spiritual death, when Adam and Eve sinned, did they physically die immediately? No. What did happen immediately, though? Spiritual death. Yeah, spiritually, that happened instantaneously. There was a spiritual alienation from God. And all living people, with one exception, Jesus, are born into this world spiritually dead. Physical death comes later, but that also comes, but that's one of the consequences as well. Everyone will someday die physically. We've all been appointed to die, a a day of death, right? 
exceptions being Enoch and Elijah. They're very high on my list of people I want to talk to in heaven. Uh, for that reason, it's unique, right? But uh, there is a future, and I guess you could say a f the future expectation of those who are alive during Christ's return, who are raptured, who will, will, will raise up and meet the Lord in the air. So there's, there's that too. But it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So physical death is a direct relation to sin. Spiritual death is a direct relation to sin. And eternal death, eternal death awaits those who physically die while being spiritually dead. And John refers to this as the second death in Revelation 26. Eternal death is still a kind of death uh, since it involves everlasting ruin and punishment and separation from God's presence to bless us. So Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. We need to be in the first resurrection if we want this life. So, continuing on in Genesis, then they were both, uh, then their eyes were both open to the results of sin, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said to you, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave me. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How does sin affect the way we act now in terms of our relationship with God and with others? You see it all right here, don't you? It's all right here. What is the first thing they do? Personally, how did it affect them? It's a shame, right? They weren't ashamed before the fall, but after the sin entered the world, all of a sudden they have shame and fear in their own the way God made them. They, they gloried in the way God made them before, but now because of sin, they do not glory in it. They're ashamed of it. Then what do they do vertically to God? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Do people hide themselves from God today? Sure do. Do Christians try to hide themselves from God today? Sometimes. We do. If we're honest, we do. This is what sin does. This is not the way we're supposed to be with God, but sin has done this. And the Lord said to Adam, man, where are you? He calls him out. But he was what? Afraid. There's a fear of God. 
This is, in some sense, this is an appropriate fear because he had violated God's law, so he should be afraid. But also prior to sin, was there a fear with him and God? In the, not in this sense. There's a, a fellowship, a sweet union with man and God, but sin had caused something to happen there. What did, the, what did sin then do horizontally to other relationships? The blame game, right? We don't do this in marriage, do we? We never blame the other person. They both blamed. The woman blamed the serpent. Adam blamed the woman, right? This is what sin does. It's just, this is, this is humanity right here on display, right in the beginning. Sin puts us at enmity with God and with each other. It's broken our relationship with him and it's made us not his friend, but his enemy. We have wronged God by our sin and we destroyed the relationship that we were meant to have and the only way to restore is through Christ the mediator. It's the only way out. So, the doctrine of original sin. Original sin concerns itself with how Adam's sin has affected the entire human race. Okay, when we're talking about original sin, that's the context that I'm referring it to. It refers to the first sin committed by Adam, but it also encompasses the sinful state and condition of all people because of their relationship to Adam, and we'll work out that here in a minute as well. It explains why people are, are tainted and depraved with sin from conception. That may seem extreme to say, but that's the language of the Bible. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ephesians 2.3, For we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so the idea here is that Adam's sin is imputed to all who were united to him as the representative head of humanity. Adam's guilt is, is our guilt. Representative headship is the actions of a representative, which are then, based on their actions, uh, determinative for all members that are united to him. Romans 5.12, I think, is one of the most popular passages and also pretty debated, too, in this context. And we're going to look at it closely here in a minute. But 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so some would argue that we can't be held accountable for the sins of others. And they would appeal to passages like in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, but there's really not a connection, I would argue, in those because the doctrine of original sin and those passages are different. Those passages address the guilt and punishment for, for personal sins, okay? But the original sin is addressing something entirely different altogether. And we're held accountable for both our personal sins, but also the sinful nature that we have. So there's some different views about how this imputation of sin works. The first would be the Pelagian view. So in other words, to what extent are we born sinful? Okay, that's what's th the, the question being proposed here. And to what extent does Adam's sin, the original sin, affect all of us here in this room and every child born after? 
And so the Bible, I think, teaches that every part of us is, is corrupted by sin. And apart from God's intervention, we are dead, according to Paul, and our trespasses and, and sins. And this has also, I think, many applications to our worldview and positions that we hold and the way we live our order our lives. So the first view, which I would call a heretical view, is the Pelagian view. And this view essentially says that Adam was just a bad example. He was a bad example and Adam's sin affected Adam only. That no one affected, no one else is affected by Adam's sin. That we're only responsible for, for our sins. Uh, people who would hold this or Unitarians or very liberal Christians. Uh, they'd say that every soul that is born is born innocent and when they say innocent, they mean untainted by sin. And so each person requires an individual fall. In other words, it's almost like they need a Genesis 3 account all over again in their own lives. And I just don't think this does any kind of justice uh, to the way the scripture describes it. For example, in Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, it says we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we're born that way. But what do you do with the, the passages in Psalm that says, in sin did my mother conceive me? Yeah, from the very beginning, we're, we're, we're born sinful. And also, if, if Adam was just a, a bad example, what do you do with Paul's writings in Ephesians 5, which says about the second Adam, is Christ just a good example for us then? And so I would call, the, and I don't use this word, lightly at all, but I, I would think it's, I think it's appropriate. I think this view is actually heretical because it makes the grace of God of no effect. If you're capable in and of yourself to, to reach perfection and to reach uh, approval of God, then what do you need the grace of God for? I think this kind of thinking leads to this, this idea that we just need to self-actualize. You just need to see the good that is really in you and then reach that potential. If we knew how good we really were, then we could essentially save ourselves and please God. In other words, I don't need God's grace. I just need to be all that God made me to be, which would reject any sort of sin. Uh, and this is now I can, I can be, I can now reject sin and call what is sin good because I'm just reaching my whole potential. Second view is uh, an orthodox view. I don't hold to this position, but it isn't uh, unorth or it's not unorthodox. It's not heretical, I should say. But this is what is called inherited sinfulness, or uh, oftentimes the Arminian view. They would interpret Romans five twelve in that all people consent to Adam's sin, and then sin is imputed to them. That, that no one doesn't sin, and so at that time when you sin, then it is imputed to you. Adam sinned, and because of that, he partially affected humanity, but depravity is, is not total, that it's only partial. People received corrupt nature from Adam, but not guilt culpability. So here's, here's my flaw with that, is we inherit a corrupt nature, but only the sinner is guilty for their own sin, they would say, okay. 
But what do you do then with Romans 5.18, which says that one trespass led to the condemnation for all men? One trespass led to the condemnation for all men. The context of that is Adam's trespass led to the condemnation for all men. And so they would basically argue, well, it affected us in that we're just sick, even, even terminally ill, they might say. Uh, in other words, though, we're not dead in our sin. We're just ill and sick and therefore still capable and able to choose Christ. So the, I, I like the way R.C. Sproul says it, and uh, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he says the Arminian has a close relative, and his close relative is called Pelagian. And I think that summarizes it well. I'm not, it's not uh, heretical, but it's really close to the Pelagian view, I think, and it makes me uncomfortable that I don't want to get too close to that. So I think the, the, the two bottom views are the, the most orthodox. This has a late, uh, uh, a rich history in terms of the reformed circles uh, of, the, of Protestants. And the first would be the Augustan view, which says that all humanity was, was physically present in Adam when he sinned. And they liked, they, they'd use the word seminally, meaning seed. In other words, the seed was passed on through Adam to us. They would appeal to passages in Hebrews chapter 7, which says that the actions of Abraham were actually the actions of, of Levi, similarly. And they would say the same is true of Adam and us. So the action sin of Adam was the action sin of us because that seed was passed on. Therefore, in a sense, we were present with it. Now, the presumption in this view uh, is, is that it would be unjust to impute Adam's sin to man unless he had actually participated in that act. That's, that's what they're presuming here. But my, my issue with that is now you have two types of imp imputation going on here. Because would that then mean, to, it, it, would, it, would we say that the sinners were, if they're wrongly imputed sin, would we say we're wrongly imputed Christ's righteousness as well? because he imputed his righteousness to us also. And, and everyone would say no to that, including them, because the union between Christ and his people is not a seminal union, it's a legal one. Legally, he, fought, he fathered no people, but legally he acquitted us because of what he did. That's the way justification works. And so they tend to apply the doctrine of imputation in two ways. One way for sin, similarly, and another way for salvation, legally. And I don't think that's the way that word is used, although many people hold it, and God bless you if you do. So I think federal headship is probably the more appropriate way. I think this relates back to the way God interacted with Adam in the, in the garden as well. Federal headship is where it says that Adam's sin is imputed to all those who were united to him as a representative head of humanity. Adam's guilt is, in a real sense, our guilt. And this view asserts the actions of a representative is determinative for all members united to him. If you remember back in Genesis 3 when he sinned, who did, who did God go to? Did he go to Eve? He went to Adam. He said, what happened? He spoke to Adam, who is the representative head. Adam is held accountable. In, in Romans chapter 5, he says the first Adam in comparison to the last Adam. 
Adam is a type of Christ, Christ being the fulfillment. He fulfilled what Adam was meant to do, but failed to do for humanity. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 is a good example of this. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And so here life and death respectively are linked to Adam and to Christ, two representatives of mankind. One brings life, one brings death. And this has salvific implications, and I would argue political implications too, because all of the orthodox view, whether it's the Arminian, the the realism, or the representative headship view, all of those orthodox views acknowledge that there's something wrong with humanity. Okay, and that's important. There is something wrong with us. We, we are not born right. We're actually born wrong, as cute as babies are. And I, we can say, in a sense, innocent, but not in a total sense. They still have a sinful nature too. They need Christ as well. And a corrupt nature cr- creates and produces a corrupt nation and a corrupt policies. And so if you don't govern in light of that, I think you get all sorts of chaos, which is what you see today, isn't it? People don't want to acknowledge the the true state of our humanity. And instead, they just want to live in Neverland and fairytale land and think that everything is great when it is not great. They, They deny our real need and they deny the depravity of man. And so now what are the things that restrain sin? Well, one, God does. Two, the Holy Spirit in the believer's life restrains sin. And three, the government does too. But when you remove those strains, you deny God, you, you, and then you have a government that's ruled by unbelievers and pagans who do not restrain sin, as they're called to do, you get chaos. This has worldview effects. And so right, it, it, these orthodox views are important because it rightly understands the true nature of man and what his need is. Why preach Christ if we don't have a need for him? Why preach Christ if there's no need for grace? The orthodox view understands the need of grace in the believer's life. And so they preach that, which is why it's important we understand that. So Romans 5, if you go there, Romans 5. I want to read all of this. I think it's helpful. We'll start in verse 12, and I'll read to the end. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have been given grace, the grace of God, and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sins. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam is a type of Christ. Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And you see this on display in in such a beautiful way here. In verse 15, you see that in Adam, many died. But in Christ, many receive grace. In Adam's sin, verse 16, you see that Adam's sin affected all of us. But Jesus offers a better gift. Adam's gift was sin. Jesus' gift is life. Verse 15 through 16, you see judgment and condemnation from Adam. But you see justification from Christ. In verse 17, you see that death reigns in righteousness Death reigns from Adam, but righteousness reigns in Christ. In in verse 18 through 19, you see that Adam made sinners, but Christ made us righteous. These, These two do not compare. In Adam, we have sin, death, condemnation, disobedience. Sin increases, sin rules, death rules. This is the world in which we live. Many are in Adam, not in Christ. This concept of union with Christ is such an important one to grasp. In Christ, we have righteousness, eternal life, justification, obedience, grace abound, grace rules, death is conquered. We must be in Christ. That which comes to man by Christ is the life we need. We have wronged God by our sin and we have destroyed that relationship because of sin. And the only way to restoration is through Christ the mediator. Psalm 85.10, such a beautiful passage. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss. This is what we have in Christ. This is Romans 5. This is where we see these things come together in the person of Christ. This is the glory of the atonement is that he brings these things together. Christ reconciles that which was broken by sin. The world cannot fix this. It will never fix this problem. Only Christ can fix it. And he does it through regenerating hearts. The greatest miracle that we will ever watch is not the parting of a sea even. It's seeing a sinner become soft to the grace of God and to love Christ and to worship Christ is seeing repentance happen. That, that is the greatest miracle. I don't need a light bulb to, to explode to see the power of God. I need to see a changed life in a hardened individual. That's the most beautiful thing. That's the thing we should be praying for in our, in our world. We should be praying for those who we love that God would change hearts, which is why we need to preach the gospel. We need to call people to this. We have a great message, a great hope. And the reality is, we will not do this on our own. We can't, by definition. We can't. What can a dead man choose? 
Nothing. What can a blind man see? Only with his imagination, but nothing tangibly, nothing real. What must first happen? What had to happen to Paul before he was converted? What fell off the scales from his eyes so he could see the beauty of Christ? Hearts need to be softened. We, we are unable in and of ourselves to, to obtain that which we need the most. A total inability describes the death of corruption and pollution of sin that has been passed down to Adam. And, and all of us have this nature. All of us do. This is sometimes referred to as total depravity or, or total inability. And what, it, what I mean by that is it affects three parts of our person. The first is that it, res, it affects all aspects of, of a person, all parts of them. I think much of this confusion that we have stems from our, our humanistic and relativistic influence on our life, which declares that man alone has the innate wisdom and knowledge to make intellectual and moral decisions for their life that will actually better their life. And they think that they can do this apart from any sort of divine source. And humanity has indeed accomplished many wonderful things, have we not? There's many things humanity has done. Things that would have been considered miracles centuries ago, we can now do today. But after centuries of being tried, of, of humanity trying to make the world better, how have we done? I mean, really, how have we done? In terms of, of maybe you've made scientific advancements, sure, but in terms of social and moral skills, are we more advanced than our ancestors were? No way. No way. I, I think we've completely failed. Mankind, in and of themselves, apart from divine power, we're bankrupt in and of ourselves. Just, just look at the 20th century alone as an example. Incredible advances in technology and science. It's really amazing when you think about it. But from a moral perspective, it's a disaster. For all of our smarts, where has it gotten us? Airplanes, computers, iPhones, spaceships, and genocide, abortion, sexual perversion, denial of reality, denial of objectivity, moral and political manipulation. How much better are we really? How well is this really working? This is why I think our actual our culture is ripe for the gospel because they see the problem, but they have no way to fix it. And I think they know that because Romans 1 says that they do know it. They do know it. This is why I like that video I showed a couple weeks ago with R.C. Sproul that talked to the lady who thought she was God. And he said, you don't really believe that, do you? It's great. We just need to call people out and say, no, you can't fix this. You know you can't fix this. You need the help of God. You need divine assistance. And we have that in the Lord. The Bible teaches that we were born into this world fallen without the kind of wisdom that would lead us to God. And from a theological perspective, we would call this depravity. In other words, man can't, can't find what he needs on his own. We need help. We, we, we are bound. 
All of us are bound. Our mental faculties are bound. Our physical faculties are bound. We can make relatively good choices, but we're still bound to the wrong side of the line. We cannot do true good. We cannot enter heaven on our own. Total inability also speaks of the person's inability of a person to actually please God. I showed you uh, when I did the Doctrine of Man this, this, this slide of a line. And on one side of the line was true good. On the other side was relative good, right? And the problem is in our sinful nature, we're always bound to the wrong side. Spurgeon said free, but bound. You're free to make choices, but you're still, whatever choices you make, they're bound to the wrong side. You need, you need the Lord to give you a renewed heart. You need to be born again, according to John 3, to get on the other side of the line to do true good. Good that would please God, because you're doing it for the glory of God. Not for your own selfish ambition, not for your own goals, but for the Lord. The highest good, the true good. So now, this doesn't mean... When it says we're in, in unable to, to please God, does it mean that all unsaved people all act as badly as they possibly can? Okay, it doesn't mean that. There are varying degrees of evil, right? Nor does it mean that all unsaved people cannot do relatively good acts for society. I think that they can. We talked about that a little bit in the doctrine of man. But when I say sin is total or pervasive, I mean that it is that way in all of its components, that all of what make us up are polluted by sin. No part escapes God. It's not that we're, our minds are free to, to think clearly and they're, un, they're unstained by sin. No, our minds are corrupted too. Our bodies are corrupted too. Our hearts are corrupted too. All The whole constitution of who man is has been corrupted by sin. It's total in that sense doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could be. And third, that means that all humanity then is conceived and born in sin. We all need the same thing. We're all equal in this way. We're all sinners in need of grace. We're all sinners that are in need of redemption. And that should humble us to evangelize. Because when you talk to someone who is totally lost... And you look into their eyes and you see that they have no understanding. It should remind you of the time in your life when you were that way too. And how the grace of God has captured your heart and it should soften you toward them. It should give you a, 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 a strong desire to, to tell them the truth, to warn them of the path they're on. The conflict of sin... For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world, 1 John two sixteen. We see this conflict manifested in, in physical and spiritual ways. First, physically with the world, there's a material world that has also fallen our, our sinful flesh is in living in this fallen world. So you have fallen people in a fallen world. There's bound to be conflict and problems. We, we are aware of that. I don't need to give too many examples. But there is also a philosophy that comes with that that also needs to be rejected. We need to be aware of it and, and watch out for its ways of influence in our life. We have a 
conflict with the flesh, the desires that control the mind and influence our actions, they're in opposition to the truth. There's this fleshly battle because we're still wearing this body. We're, we're awaiting the resurrection. We are, we're not in our renewed bodies yet. We have been renewed in our hearts. We have the spirit of God in us. So we have the ability to fight and overcome. But there's this constant battle that you should feel in your life. If you're walking with the Lord, you should be aware, increasingly aware of this tension. And so we need to bring our mind and our influence and our hearts under the influence of Christ continually, daily. I think one of the best things that we can do to, to, to make ourselves sensitive of this is that when we sin, in that moment, confess it and name it. It's not just, you know, honey, I'm, I'm sorry I was mean. There's more to it than that, I guarantee you. It's not that you were just mean. It's that you probably had some sort of selfish ambition and you could care less about the other person's desire. And, and Paul says, consider others better than yourself, right? It's a lot deeper when you start analyzing things. And when you can learn to analyze it and name it and repent of it and give it to the Lord, there's freedom in that. And there's peace too, because you're truly reconciling and dealing with the root of the problem. So deal with this, fight this flesh, fight the world that we're in that is tainted by sin and be aware of the spiritual realm too. There are other forces at work that we do not see and we do not always perceive, but we see through the pages of scripture that they are very active and they have nefarious motives and they want to harm you because they, they hate God and they want to disrupt his purposes and plans and they know that by disrupting you, they can disrupt him. Be encouraged that God protects us, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so we need to remember that and live accordingly. Be aware of these three areas of conflict with sin in your life and learn to identify what one is giving you trouble in the moment and learn how to fight that according to scripture. Provisions, what has God given us to fight? We have this conflict, that should be obvious, but how do we engage it? In Luke chapter four, it's a famous passage where Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and he overcomes Satan. The connection here to Genesis three should be obvious. In the beginning there, humanity was tempted in the same way and they failed. But when Christ was put to the test, he overcame. This is the first Adam, last Adam comparison here. But in Luke 4, in the first verse, it opens with this very important word. It says that Jesus was full of the Spirit. Then it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That is key. That is key to our provision for winning the spirit of God and the believer's life. And then we can look at Jesus's life and we can say, how did, how did he combat Satan? Well, he used the word of God. These are a great, this is a great weapon. We need the word of God. The word of God equips us, it trains us, it rebukes, it sanctifies, it cleanses, it aids the believers in prayer. 2 Timothy 3.16 is there to equip and train for righteousness' sake. It's there to equip us for every good work. 
It keeps the believer from a life of sin. It cleanses the believer. It aids us. We need the word of God to do all of these things. But if we don't have a sanctified mind, we will not use the word of God right. If we don't have the spirit of God in us, we will still not overcome sin. We need, we need the spirit of God. Otherwise, we become just like little devils who have knowledge of God, but don't rightly apply it. We need the intercession of Christ. Christ is our mediator. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is the believer's advocate and defense attorney. And so when those feelings of shame that sin does in us personally, when, when Satan, the, the accuser, comes before us and he accuses us of our sin, we can turn to him and say, go away. I have an advocate in heaven who is my defense. And he has said that I am not guilty. You say what you want, but those fall on deaf ears to God in the courtroom because God, Jesus has justified me. We, we can say that with authority and with certainty because we have an advocate and a defense against the accusations of sin. So don't let shame and fear rule your life. Christ prays for the security and the joy and the protection of his people. He sets us apart for truth. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit anoints, it seals, it empowers, it fills, it enables the believer to live righteously. And so it was a great lesson on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does all of those things in our life. And because of that, we have the provisions that we need to overcome sin. Oh boy, I'm out of time. Let's do one question, though. Are infants guilty before they commit actual sin? What happens to infants when they die? If in sin did my mother conceive me, is it right to say infants are without sin and innocent? Are infants guilty before they commit actual sin? What happens then? Okay, so yes, I agree. What happens to infants when they die? It's a good answer. Yep. Mm -hmm. How is anyone saved? Grace and faith, right? Is faith something we mustered up or is faith a gift? Faith is a gift the same way grace is a gift. Ryan talked about that this morning actually. Salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. So the first thing I would say, number one, if they're saved, they're saved by the same way that we are saved, and that is that there's a, the faith we exert comes from God as a gift to us. And if it's given to us as a gift, then could it not be given to a youngest, youngest of people as well? 
interesting. I don't want to make too much of this because this is just my observations, but I've never met a child that has doubted the existence of God or of Christ. They just believe it. And I don't know if that's God's way of doing it. I don't know. But I also see many examples in Scripture. John the Baptist in Luke 1.15 says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What does that mean? John was born again even before he was born is what I take that to mean, right? And this is obviously not the normal way of, of salvation, but it did happen, right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I think the best passage to go to that I would bank on to say that I think that children, infants would be with the Lord at death is 2 Samuel 12, 23. It's the story of David. We're familiar. What happened there, Will? David sinned greatly against Bathsheba. He got found out. As a punishment, his child was taken. He fasted with his great, it's a great example of prayer, by the way. He fasted with his face on the ground, praying. His servants were afraid to tell him of the death of his child because of how he might react. They thought, he's so distraught over this. What's he going to do when I tell him his son has died? And they finally do tell him. He's suspicious that something's going on. He gets up, cleans himself, goes back to life. And they say, well, what's up with this? What's, why, why are you acting normal? I, a second ago, you're, you're distraught and, and, and in prayer. And now, now that your son's actually died, you seem to just go on as normal. And he says, what's the point? One day I will go to be with him, but he shall not return to me. So there's this quiet confidence. And I think this has even more of a pull to me because when you look at his other son, Solomon, or Absalom, sorry, when Absalom dies, what does he do? Greatly distressed, just broken to the core. At his death, he's broken. Why? Absalom rejected God. There's a sadness that comes with that, but there's a peace that comes with knowing where your loved ones are. And so I I believe, okay, and I say this with varying degree of confidence, but I believe children and those with severe disabilities are saved the same way believers are God's sovereign grace. And scripture seems to indicate that there is some degree of assurance that children who die young will be, will be saved and seen again in heaven. And I'd base that off of, of David's response there. Unless David is going somewhere other than heaven, it seems to imply that his child is also in heaven. So ultimately, I think we need to leave matters like this in the hands of God who identifies as being merciful, as you've said. We, we leave it there. But I do think there's a, a, some confidence that we can place that, that God will, will care for his little ones. He certainly loved children. Let the little ones come to me. All right, we've gone over, way over. So I'm gonna end. But uh, come find me if you have other questions. Let me pray and we will dismiss. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this night. Uh, I wish there was more I could say, uh, but your word certainly says much. Uh, May we learn to uh, understand this doctrine more fully. May we understand it more in our life and then just be more amazed at your grace, more amazed at your goodness and benevolence and love toward us that you would look upon such unworthy sinners as us and say, I want you and I'm going to save you and that you would call us your own and bring us 
to yourself, Lord. What a, what a wonderful privilege we have. May we tell that good news to all this week and every week. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.